When I became a father for the first time, because, because it was the first time, and with my firstborn, I was nervous. Now the second one's on the way, and I'm again nervous, mostly because I'm having a daughter. And, and maybe dads of girls can relate. Just the world can be a dangerous place for any child, but am I overreacting if I think it's even less safe for daughters? Child pornography, sex trafficking, rapists. We live in a society where a predator could be a doctor for the national gymnastics team. Now, at times we may feel helpless in the face of evil today. We're not sure how to protect women and other victims of abusive men. But then I look at my son and realize there is something I can do. I can raise up a good son. I can't raise all the boys on the earth, but just one, and I better do my best. Of course, the best way to raise my son is to point him to God and his word. And do you, you know, believe that this book, the Bible, will guide you to raise up boys to be men? As parents, we've got to ask ourselves that question. And there are a lot of voices out there that are, Experts and talking heads who identify the symptoms of evil and expose men's evil. They do put their finger on the problem to some degree, yes. Some males are toxic. But thankfully, the Bible does more than just point out the predicament. It offers a solution. The only solution to sin. But before we talk about that, we'll see in today's passage what happens when wicked men do too much and faithful men do too little. Now, as you uh, make your way to 2 Samuel 13, I'm just going to set the scene. We're about halfway through 2 Samuel, which consists of 24 chapters in total. What just happened in the context of the Ammonite War, the war against the Ammonites, Israel and David's adultery with Bathsheba was a major turning point. The king did repent and he was forgiven, free from the eternal consequences of sin. But there are temporal consequences of his sin. Let me read from chapter 12, verse 7 through 12. Right after Nathan confronted David about that sin and told him, You are the man. It's from middle of verse 7 onward. This is chapter 12, verse 7 through 12. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. The prophet delivers a scathing reprimand. Then he forecasts 
the terrible events to come in David's life. There will be heartaches. There will be trouble as a sword, adversity, and this dishonor will plague him. It's one thing if he's pursued by foreigners, but now it's personal, familiar, or familial. It's going to be a royal pain. And no sooner than when David wraps up the struggle with the Ammonites in chapter 12, we're reintroduced to the princess who caused him much grief, Amnon and Absalom. I say reintroduced because we saw their names back in chapter 3 in a list of David's sons. Amnon is David's firstborn from a woman named Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. Absalom had a different mother, Maaka, the daughter of Talmai, king of Gashur. Now, it's interesting that even though Absalom's listed third in the list, he plays the most important role in this chapter. For example, Tamar's introduced as Absalom's sister, not David's daughter. It is Absalom's hatred, grudge, and revenge, and flight that moves the story along. David's emotions don't amount to much here. Now, let's see what happens in 2 Samuel 13. If you're following along in your pew Bible, it's in page 220, 2 Samuel chapter 13. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Abnon, the son of David, loved her. Abnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin. And it was improper for Abnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemia, David's brother. Now Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day by after day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food. And prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom, that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him, brought them to, him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister, but she answered, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this grace, disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he will not heed her voice. And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. So she said to him, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other 
that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended him and said, Here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. That she had on a robe of many colors, for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel. And his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shearers. Please, let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. And it came to pass while they were on the way, that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord king Take the thing to his heart, to think that all the king's sons are dead, where only Amnon is dead. Then Absalom fled, and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked. And there, many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind them. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming, as your servant said, so it is. So it was, as soon as he had finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. In terms of division, there are three major scenes, two chronological markers in this one chapter. As you can see, in verses 1 through 22, we're at Jerusalem. Tamar's raped at Amnon's house, and she finds refuge at Absalom's house. The chapter begins with unrestrained love. As the narrator says, Amnon loved Tamar, Absalom's sister. At the end of verse 22, there's unresolved hate. As it says, Absalom hated 
Amnon for violating Tamar, his sister. In verses 23 to 36, we have another tragic event that flows from that hatred. What happened in the first part of this chapter leads to what happens here in its second part. Absalom's hatred is not resolved. You see the chronological break in verse 23 as two full years pass. Absalom plots to take Amnon's life at Baal-Hazur. And as Jonadab reports in verse 32, this has been determined from the day that Amnon forced his sister Tamar. Finally, in the third closing section, verses 37 to 39, you see Absalom fleeing to Geshur and staying there for three years. It's a logical place of refuge as their king Talmai is Absalom's maternal grandfather. All throughout this chapter, Absalom's literally moving further and further away from David. First, they were at the same city. Then Absalom was about 12 miles north in Baal-Hazor. Finally, he's in a foreign land, about 120 miles north of Jerusalem in what is modern-day Golan Heights. All the while, besides visiting Amnon, David's not doing much. He sent Tamar to go to Amnon, and then he allowed Amnon to go to Absalom. What did he think was going to happen? He's a passive reactor to the acts of great evil done by and done to his children. Certainly he's emotional. He's very angry in verse 21. He weeps very bitterly in verse 36. Verses 37 and 39, he mourns for Absalom and longs for him after he's recovered from his bereavement. While his emotions appear genuine, they sort of fizzle out or dry up without any follow-up action. Sorry to say, David's not a good father or a good king, at least not in this chapter. So what's there to learn from this passage? What are the lessons? Well, from the passivity and activity of men in this chapter, we were taught what not to do more than what to do. And I see three problems that call for our immediate attention and action as leaders, as parents, as children, as saints. One, lust unrestrained leads to sexual immorality. Lust unrestrained leads to sexual immorality. That's verses 1 through 22. Two, hate unresolved leads to murder. Hate unresolved leads to murder. That's verses 23 to 36. And three, child unreconciled leads to rebellion. Child unreconciled leads to rebellion. That's verses 37 to 39. First, lust unrestrained leads to sexual immorality. And if you ever want a twisted and wicked distortion of love, look no further than Amnon. It says that he loved Tamar, but we know this is not love actually. This is the complete opposite of 1 Corinthians 13. Amnon did not suffer long. 
He was unkind. He was rude. He sought his own. He does not rejoice in the truth. The law clearly condemns incest, and you see in Deuteronomy 27. The fact that she's a beautiful virgin, meaning she's young, single, and will soon be given away in marriage, made the struggle so much worse for Amnon. Amnon wouldn't and couldn't let it go. And if you don't let go of lust, lust won't let go of you. While Amnon was uh, pining away, his cousin Jonadab came along. Jonadab is to Amnon as Jezebel was to Ahab. This guy should get the worst cousin in the world reward. Um, He's very crafty. It says more literally he's very wise. It's obvious here he uses his wisdom for evil, not good, as he advises the prince. Now, it doesn't take much convincing from Jonadab to get Amnon to agree to his idea. In fact, Jonadab doesn't even have to spell out the final step of the plan in verse 5. He probably just nudged Amnon on the ribs. They likely gave each other a knowing look. They're in sync. Amnon doesn't hesitate. He gets right to action. His is a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil. Counsel of the wicked are deceitful. David doesn't know these counsels because he doesn't know his son. So he permits his daughter to go there. And when I read verses 8 through 11, I felt like I'm watching a horror movie pleading, don't go in there. But it's not a movie. It's a scary reality for many women. And it's too late for this princess. The trap is sprung and the prey is entangled when Amnon took hold of Tamar. At first, he tries to convince her to be a willing participant, but Tamar begs to be spared. Rape is illegal. Incest is illegal. She not only only considers her shame, she also thinks of Amnon's reputation. I'm not sure if she really believes that her father would give her to him, but she's making every appeal possible to avoid what would happen next. But her voice goes unheeded. Love, lust, unrestrained, leads to sexual immorality. Next, we see why the so-called love Amnon had for Tamar was not really love at all. Uh, His true colors emerge in verse 5. There's a lot of hatred there, and the sentence is kind of cumbersome in the original. It literally says, Amnon hated her with the great hate exceedingly. And then, as you can see in the English translation, it says, the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. So obviously, the evil prince wanted the princess for the chase and the prize, not for a committed relationship. Tamar again pleased, trying to make best of a terrible situation. If Amnon sends her away, he would be breaking the law even further. It's stated in Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 22 that the man who lay with the virgin shall give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her and he shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. Amnon humbled his sister, but he did not exalt her. He took the innocence of a royal daughter 
and he paid nothing. Certainly not a lifetime of commitment. Tamar was once the object of his affections. Her name meant everything. Now she's called this. The word woman is not even in there in the original language. Just hours ago, he couldn't get her out of his mind. Now he wants her out of his sight. When Tamar was expelled from Amnon's presence, she could not help but hide her feelings of disgrace. Her purity gave her dignity, but it was stolen from her. She was used and discarded. She was unceremoniously dismissed. And now she begins the ceremonial mourning. It's possible that she did not want to disclose what happened at first, but her brother Absalom figures it out and shelters her. It's sad that she could not go to her father. It's a real tragedy here. Perhaps the king spoiled Amnon and let him get away with anything. Not sure what's going on here. but And maybe even though David was angry, he did not feel qualified to say anything because of what he did with Bathsheba. We see the sexual immorality. So it's, in some ways, it's like father, like son. I believe it was F.B. Meyer who said, quote, Certainly a man never sees the worst of himself until it reappears in his child. End quote. Do we care about the example we set for our children? Are we concerned about their purity and integrity? Is character and godliness our highest priority? We can worry about education and all these things. And at times I look at my son and wish that, and I hope that he's taller, stronger, more athletic than me when he grows up. I hope he doesn't inherit all my physical weaknesses. Similarly, you may want your children to be richer than you, more successful than you, more educated than you, etc., etc. But then I read chapters like this one. Think again. I pray, God, please don't let my son inherit my spiritual weaknesses. Same mistakes I made. Lord, I ask that he'd understand the gospel sooner than I did. That he realize his sin, repent, and turn to Christ. May he not fall into the same temptations and lures of the world I fell into. Abnon demonstrates how lust unrestrained leads to sexual immorality. Meanwhile, David did not discipline his firstborn, comfort his daughter, check on his younger son who's harboring hatred. Perhaps he figured, well, I didn't hear Absalom say anything good or bad about Abnon, so I'm sure everything's fine. Everything wasn't fine. There was something ugly festering in Absalom's heart. David's going to learn the hard way that hate unresolved leads to murder. Now, before I talk about Absalom's hate, I need to finish the thought on David's anger. The king should have done something with it. Now, don't get me wrong. Anger, like sexual desire, is a powerful force that must be corralled and controlled. 
Paul, citing David himself, commands, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. James says, Do not be quick to wrath, as the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In the case of David, he was angry and commits the sin of omission. He did nothing. That's not good. He watched the sunset many times while still wrathful. Also, the wrath of man is one thing in general. The wrath of the king is another. It says in Proverbs that it should be directed against him who causes shame in Proverbs 14.35. But it wasn't. We say actions speak louder than words. I have to say David's inactions also tell me something. He's not in tune with his family because it seems he's not in tune with God. So right under his nose, Absalom plots to repay evil with evil. Now, I'm not dogmatic on this part, but I think Absalom's initial invitation of the king to Balhazor was his last attempt to get his father to do something. I think Absalom's even dropping some hints here. Is it possible that the prince is by carefully choosing the occasion of sheep shearing, trying to get his father to remember Genesis 38? Why Genesis 38, you ask? Because in that chapter, there's a woman forgotten named Tamar. There's incest, there's sheep shearing, there's vindication, there's father admission of wrong, namely the neglect of a marginalized woman. Maybe the overlaps between Genesis 38 and 2 Samuel 13 are merely coincidences, but we can tell Absalom thought through his plan. He probably anticipated that David himself would not come to Belhazor. It's as if David's throne has become a lazy chair. Once Absalom was assured that the king won't be there, he makes sure Abnon is there. And just as David allows Tamar to walk right into Abnon's trap, he allows Abnon to walk right into Absalom's trap. The fact that other princes were there at, present at the event did not deter Absalom. He seemed to have very loyal followers as his executioners. We're going to learn about his charm later. He inspired his servants who ambushed and killed Amnon while he was drunk. Hate unresolved leads to murder. While the survivors fled, the news of this evil arrived ahead of them to David. But there's some misinformation. The king initially thought that all of his sons were dead. Now his reaction in verse 31 suggests that he believed his son was capable of such brutality. But then that crafty Jonadab steps in to take advantage of the situation, curry favor with the king with the accurate reporting of events. Well, if he was truly honest, he'd admit that two years ago he got that lustful Amnon going with his plan to rape Tamar. It seems Jonadab was an opportunist at best, and David was some sort of a fatalist at best. Maybe he stood by and gave up parenting because 
He knew the prophecies of Nathan from chapter 12 must come true. But remember there how David fasted and pleaded for that sick child. That first child he had with Bathsheba. He didn't just throw up his hands and say, oh well. He didn't say there's nothing left to do. He repented, he fasted, he prayed until the bitter end. In a word, he was a father. He wasn't a perfect one, but he was a father nonetheless. Here, we don't see much fathering of his adult wayward sons and his disgraced daughter. But even after all that has conspired, it wasn't too late. David could still do something, and he still doesn't do anything. Even after bearing two sons, and after a daughter's violated, David doesn't seem to be very active here. He's about to learn that a child unreconciled leads to rebellion. The Proverbs thirteen twenty four says, He who spares his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Promptly. Not a week later, not a month later, certainly not years later. Promptly. Surely a king who has ventured far and wide to flee persecution, quell rebellions, and fight the enemies of Israel can make the trip to Geshur for his son. But the courageous man who formerly blazed the trail now just cries himself a river. Every day for three years. If he longed to go, why not go? If he's done mourning for his dead son, why not rescue the living one? It was time for David to stop being a maudlin and start to get moving. It will be evident as we continue in the next few chapters that a child unreconciled leads to rebellion. At times I fear that I make the same mistakes as David. See, I spent many years away from my father, not only because he immigrated to the States before my mom and I got, I got here. Even after that, my father left us as he struggled with alcohol and unemployment. I was left alone in my formative years to figure out life. I got used to being apart from him all the way into adulthood. And sadly, I wasn't able to honor him properly in the last days of his life. Now, I wasn't rebellious per se, but I wasn't really reconciled to him either. The ripped that can grow between parents and children. And it could be the sin of the parents, it could be the sin of the children, it could be both. It must be closed before it's too late. If as parents you haven't prayed for your kids lately, or if you haven't called or wrote them in a while, and vice versa, you know, if you haven't prayed for your parents, or if you haven't called or wrote them in a while, why don't we do that today? Even if the kids are independent and doing well, they're still your sons and daughters. 
They may not be under your roof anymore, but they should always be in your heart. And David's failures in this chapter gives us an opportunity to look to the Lord. To begin, there are parallels uh, with God the Father and David the Father. And just consider the emotions there of anger and sorrow. The Holy One of Israel is provoked to anger by our corruption and sin. At the same time, the Lord's heart churns within himself and his sympathy is stirred for his people as we see in Hosea. But unlike this king of Israel, the great king of all nations takes action. He didn't just sit there on his heavenly throne after we broke his laws, lusted with our eyes, hated with our hearts, disobeyed our parents, and provoked our children to anger. God moved to action. That action was driven by love. As we sang earlier, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty parent, that's probably Adam and Eve, bow down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Instead of letting us be as we err, God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Jesus is God and man at the same time. He took initiative unlike David. He was wise, but not with the earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom of Jonadab and Amnon. There was no evil motive in Jesus Christ as he remained silent. He was not secretly plotting like Absalom. Instead, our Lord Jesus prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Christ lived a perfect life and gave up that life, that perfect life on the cross, paying the penalty of sin that we should pay. The wages of sin is death. We're talking about hell, a place of fiery torment, eternal separation from God. When Jesus was crucified, he experienced that pain and with love paid the cost of our lust, hate, and rebellion. He died and rose again from the grave and ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. Until then, we must quickly and earnestly repent and trust in Christ. And turn away from self-righteousness and selfish living. Turn to Jesus and ask him to save you today. You cannot save yourself. Heaven is a gift. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. The world remains a dangerous and daunting place. No matter how hard I try, I can't protect my children completely and always from evil men. But there is one man, God-man, who loves us, shows us perfect manhood as he represents our Heavenly Father. Let's remind ourselves of that and teach, teach others and each other this truth. The Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. 
we can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word because it tells us the truth, truths about ourselves that all throughout our history we've caused pain, we've hurt others, we've violated your laws, and we've put our society in great peril. We've hurt others, even those who are closest to us. And Lord, As much as we may want to in our flesh skip over those pages, Lord, you confront us with the truth of our sinfulness and our guilt, our lust, our hate, our rebellion. But Lord, we're also thankful that your word teaches us that you haven't given up on humanity. You haven't given up on manhood or womanhood, families. We thank you that you sent your son as man. Lord, we thank you that he is perfect and we can look to him not only for our personal transformation but we look forward to that perfect kingdom where there's righteousness, joy, and bliss because you are perfect and you are good. Pray that we would look forward to that day even as things around us look darker and more decrepit and uglier than ever. We look to your beauty and the beauty of your kingdom. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.